Hello folks, welcome to episode 155 of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray, and this week I'm a little bit under the weather. Uh, turned out I got COVID-19 during the week, so yeah, uh, we will keep this one a little bit shorter. I'll try not to be doing too much talking so I don't have to listen uh, to my nasally voice for too long. Uh, we do, though, also bring you this week uh, Camilla, as she's done a fourth part to her three-part Ubuntu Hardening Guide. Yeah, that's an off-by-one error for those of you paying attention at home. Uh, so yeah, that is uh, coming up later. Uh, but first, we will do the usual roundup of security fixes that have gone into the supported Ubuntu releases during the past week. Up first, we had an update for Thunderbird. Uh, this updates Thunderbird to the latest upstream release, 91.7.0. Uh, this has actually been uh, kind of long awaited. We've actually had some different people raising this in the uh, Ubuntu discourse that uh, Thunderbird does take longer to get security updates than Firefox and some other packages. Unfortunately, uh, Thunderbird is uh, just not as popular. And so there are other packages that, that come first. Uh, but yeah, we do endeavor to bring these all out to you eventually to keep people as safe as we can. Uh, but there's just only so much that can be done uh, in a usual working week. Uh, but that is now out. Uh, that is for Ubuntu releases 18.04 and 20.04 long-term support and 21.10. We had an update uh, for the Linux kernel as well for our OEM customers. This is for Ubuntu release 20.04 long-term support. A couple of different CVEs were fixed here. One of them was a memory leak that could be triggered through ICMPv6. That could then allow a remote unauthenticated user to cause a denial of service against your system. As well, uh, there was a possible heat buffer overflow in uh, the handling of ESP transformations in IPsec. Basically, uh, that one, though, is not remotely tr- triggerable, even though, obviously, it's with IPsec. This is related to local users. So a local user then could possibly uh, denial of service against your system or potentially uh, elevate their privileges if they could corrupt the right memory and all that kind of thing. So that being updated after the OEM kernel. We had an update as well for OpenVPN. One CVE was fixed here for Ubuntu releases 18.04 long-term support, 20.04 long-term support, and 21.10. In this case, uh, it was possible uh, that uh, attacker could potentially bypass authentication with only partially correct credentials. Basically, uh, OpenVPN has a plugin-based system to uh, handle different types of authentication. Uh, they can then use deferred authentication. However, if you had multiple plugins all using deferred authentication, uh, OpenVPN would essentially get confused about the result and could then potentially authenticate someone even though they hadn't yet provided all the correct credentials. In this case, uh, OpenVPN was fixed to then uh, basically only allow a single plugin to do deferred authentication as a result. We also had an update for Firefox that updates Firefox to the latest upstream release 98.0.2. That was an upstream uh, regression release and that has now been rolled out for a bunch of releases 18.04 and 20.04 long-term support and 21.10. We also had an update for Python. Uh, this re- update goes all the way back to Ubuntu uh, 14.04 extended security maintenance and 16.04 extended security maintenance, plus 18.04 long-term support, uh, 20.04 long-term support as well. Uh, three different CVEs were rolled into this. Uh, one of them is that uh, the PyDoc server could potentially disclose files that it wasn't meant to to uh, external users. Basically, uh, we recommend that you shouldn't be uh, exposing PyDoc to, say, the internet or to untrusted users as a result. As well, uh, it, there was the FTP module would mishandle FTP requests and so it could be tricked into connecting to the wrong server. And finally, uh, the URL lib.parse um, module would mishandle URLs with embedded new lines. Basically, then it would be possible to bypass the usual checks that are there and then allow um, or would then lead to uh, URL injection as a result. The Smarty package was updated for a bunch of releases, 18.04 long-term support and 21.10. Uh, this is a PHP templating engine. Uh, it failed basically to validate paths that were in templates, and that then meant if you were using an attacker-controlled template, that could then end up including arbitrary files as a result, and they could then read arbitrary files. Similarly, though, there were a bunch of different code execution vulnerabilities that were affected, uh, that were, sorry, that were 
fixed in this update. Uh, and so uh, even if you have applications that are using Smarty to do its um, PHP generation through templating, uh, they could have been affected as well. So yeah, definitely make sure you've updated your Smarty install for that one. An update for the bin utils uh, gold linker. So this isn't the standard linker in Ubuntu, but uh, you can use it manually yourself and it is generally faster. Although as I say, yeah, the standard linker in Ubuntu is LD. Uh, this was for Ubuntu 6.4 extended security maintenance and basically there was an out of bounds read that could be triggered when uh, handling a crafted elf file there. So I guess if you are uh, linking untrusted inputs uh, on Xenial with gold, you're a little bit safer now. Also, we had an update for uh, the libtsa TASN1 uh, library in 604 extended security maintenance as well. In this case, it was possible uh, to perform a denial of service against uh, the CPU through crafted ASM1 input. Basically, we just spend all its time spinning, trying to pass that and get nowhere. Uh, that does only happen though on compile time. So I guess if you are using uh, libtsn1 to uh, then compile or to generate code that will then pass ASN, you may have been affected by that, but otherwise, yeah, probably all right. We also had an update for Paramico. This is the Python SSH client. Uh, a single CVE here that uh, was all the way back to 604 extended security maintenance plus 1804 long-term support, 24 long-term support, and 2110. Uh, Paramico would basically, uh, or could be configured to create private keys automatically. As a result, it would then create that private key file and then go and set the permission so that no one else can read it. Uh, for those of you uh, playing at home, you may have spotted a race condition there, and that's exactly what this was. Basically, there's a very small time window there between when the file is created and then when the permissions are set on it that a local attacker could read that out. And so uh, that was fixed to just simply make sure that the right uh, mask of permissions were used when the file was created in the first place so we didn't have to then go and chmod it afterwards. Uh, OpenJDK was updated after that. Uh, this is OpenJDK 11. So this is for Ubuntu 18.04 long-term support, 20.04 long-term support, and 21.10. Uh, this was uh, an upstream uh, regression uh, release. Basically, uh, the previous release of 11.0.14 uh, had a small regression in the handling of HTTP2. And so upstream released a uh, .1 release uh, for that. And so that we've now rolled that out as well. And finally, in the weekend security updates, we had an update for Chromium for Ubuntu 18.04 long-term support. Uh, as always, thanks to Olivier Tilloy from the desktop team, that's Osman, for preparing that one again. Uh, so yeah, that is a high priority vulnerability. There were reports that I think this one was being uh, exploited in the wild. So yeah, if you are using Chromium on 18.04 long-term support, definitely make sure that you have updated for that one. All right, and that takes us to the end of the week in security updates. So as I mentioned at the start, the other thing that I'm really happy to bring you this week is the fourth part in Camilla's Ubuntu hardening series. Uh, as we talked about previously, uh, she made an initial three-part series that kind of walked you through how to harden Ubuntu at install time, then post-install, and then when installing your applications. Uh, through that series, we've had uh, various bits of feedback and the like. Uh, so this is a fourth part that kind of rolls together that feedback, brings together some extra tips as well. So yeah, if you haven't listened to those first three parts, definitely make sure that you go back and listen to those first. But if you have, yeah, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Take it away. Thank you, Camilla. Hello, listener. Welcome back to our Ubuntu hardening journey in the Ubuntu Security Podcast. Hey, I know what you're thinking. I can't count. I said this would be a three-part series, and well, here I am in a fourth episode talking about this again. You could also be thinking, hey, you've got the wrong title there. What's the new topic for this episode? And should this be any other situation? I might have said you are right to either one of those two assumptions, because I can be a bit of a scatterbrain sometimes, but not this time. I am here today once again talking about Ubuntu hardening because, hey, cybersecurity is a continuous effort. Remember that? 
And you know what also is a continuous effort? Learning and becoming wiser. And in our journey to do so, it is very likely that we will make a few mistakes here and there, myself included. Okay, okay, I'll stop rambling and saying pretty words to distract you of the real deal here. I might have made some mistakes. Oops, I apologize. Because, yes, I do know about cybersecurity, but I am definitely not the master of all when it comes to it. So, in the past three episodes, there were some sentences here and there that might have been a little bit incorrect, and some other sentences that might have been forgotten to be said. But worry not, I am here today to fix this. I got a review on my script for the last three episodes made by another one of the security team members, and they gave me a lot of helpful feedback on what I said and on what I suggested to you all. Since I had already recorded the other episodes and my laziness spoke a little higher than my willingness to spend the day re-editing audio files, I decided to instead bring a new episode to you. Coincidentally, recording a part four to a previously established three-part series really resonates with the vibe that is the hardening process of an operating system. We want to always review our work and fix mistakes whenever possible. Maintain and evolve, even if we do hit a few bumps on the road and make some mistakes along the way. We are human after all, and even if the computer isn't, all that it does is do what we ask of it. So, yeah. Enough introductions, let's move on to the meat and potatoes of this episode and right some wrongs. Oh, actually, I don't think it's really necessary to mention this, but there is always that one person, so listen to the other episodes if you haven't yet. I can't really fix something that you don't even know is broken. Okay, point number one that was brought to my attention. Remember when we were talking about the swap partition in part one? Well, it is a valid solution for all the reasons that I mentioned there, but it is not the only one. Drum roll, please, as I introduce you all, if you don't already know it, to the swap file. Ta-da! The swap file, as the name suggests, is a file in your system that will serve the same purpose as a swap partition. However, instead of being configured as a separate partition of your disk, a swap file is created under the root partition in your system and you simply nudge the operating system to remind it that that specific file should be used as a swap whenever necessary. Neat, right? Especially because resizing swap files is a lot easier than resizing an entire swap partition. A lot easier. Using command F allocate or command DD will help you get a swap file ready in case you wish to use this method of swapping instead of creating an entire new partition during install, or in case you forgot about it during install. Use the make swap tool to tell Ubuntu that the new file is a swap space and enable the swap file with swap on. To finish it off and make changes permanent, add information on the swap file to FS tab. Remember to correctly set permissions in this swap file, as even though it is a swap entity, it is still a file. Only the root user should be able to write to that file or read from it, so get your Chimode 600 ready for that. The conclusion here is, 
Both a swap partition and a swap file will serve the same purpose, and they are both located on disk, so not much to compare on that front. However, if you are looking for something more flexible, stretchy, if you will, consider using the swap file. It will help you out with your maintainability needs and adjusting to changes in the future, especially if these changes involve increasing the size of the swap or decreasing it due to hardware changes applied to your device or any other type of related changes. I do stress though, hopefully enough that you are just being reminded of this here, do this if this suits your needs. Maybe you already have a swap partition and it is okay to you for it to have an immutable size until the end of eternity, and that is great. You do you. What is important for you to take away here is that I am giving you another option, one that might better suit your needs or not, but I am not the one to decide that for you. Next up, let's talk about that hide PID equals to two suggestion I made in part two, shall we? This suggestion came up when we were talking about FSTab, and I was telling you about ways to protect your proc directory from the prying eyes of possibly malicious users. Well, it unfortunately doesn't work when you have systemd installed, which is the case for Ubuntu. So yes, blame me for relying possibly incorrect information to you. I am deeply sorry, but please don't cancel me for it. There are a few bug threads that mention this error and a lot of proposed solutions given by the community can be found in the various comments. I will not go into too much detail on those here because it might be a bit difficult to get the actual solution through without any visual aid, but I do encourage you to do some research on this and maybe apply one of the suggested alternatives should it be adequate for your system. Sorry once again for giving you a hardening tip that would cause an error in your system but hopefully the solutions out there will allow you to get right what I initially got wrong. I'll try to get some links containing some of these solutions added to the podcast notes in order to help you out and in order to atone for my mistakes. I'm sorry, I'm sorry once again. Okay, I'll stop now. Point number three. I told you to love your logs and embrace your logs during part two of this series. The computer pours out its innermost secrets to you and you decide to ignore it? Well, I kind of ignored it a little bit as well because I talked so much about syslog and all of its log files that I forgot about another oh-so-very-important member of the logging squad, journal D. If your Linux system has system D, it does have journal D, and therefore, if you are using Ubuntu, you most likely have it too. Since journal D stores data in binary format, the usual way of accessing the data it collects is not recommended here, as our brains have still not yet evolved to immediately read and process unreadable characters when looking at a sequence of those characters. There are no plain text log files here. Instead, if you want to check out all of the logging goodness that journal D can provide and expose all of your device's secrets, you have to use the journal CTL utility. I am pretty sure this name is familiar to you, as most times when you have a service issue in Ubuntu or a system issue in general, it recommends you to check out the output of journal D by typing in a shell journal CTL minus X. 
Journal D is a very interesting logging tool and it can allow you to troubleshoot your system very efficiently. It tracks each log to a specific system boot, for example, and this means you can check logs considering only data connected to a specific boot instance when using the minus B option. So if you have a situation where you know that the issue happened the last time you turned on your computer, instead of checking all of the log, you can narrow it down and try to find your problem in less lines of log data instead. You can also filter log data based on a time range, based on a specific service, based on a specific user, or based on message priority level. Which one is better to use between syslog and journal D, you ask? It depends on your needs. Advantages of using journal D include the fact that it structures data in such a way that searches can be optimized. Plus, it indexes data, meaning that lookup operations of the log files will happen in a much faster manner than they would when searching for information in plain text files. Filtering is also easier with Journal D, as seen by all the options I mentioned previously that you can use together with Journal CTL. With syslog and all its different plain text log files, it might be a little bit more difficult or troublesome to find exactly what you're looking for and even correlate log information without having a third-party software to maybe assist you with this job. When searching through syslog logs, we usually end up using grep, our handy-dandy text file search tool, but unfortunately, grep will not take into account the context of a situation. So, when searching through syslog logs, instead of a simple one-line command you would type if using journal CTL, you create a huge multi-line beast with a lot of pipes to get a coherent and valuable result out of the many syslog files you wish to have analyzed. Another advantage of Journal D is that Journal D has permissions associated to its log files, so every user is able to see their own log without actually being able to see output that would be exclusive only to root, for example. Said users needing to prove their privileged identity before accessing this other sensitive data about the system. Therefore, regular users are able to troubleshoot using journal D-logs, but at the same time, information that should not be exposed to regular users for one reason or another is protected. With syslog, it will all depend on permissions associated to the log text files, and these will include all of the information for one specific log source, so it won't be every random user that will have the opportunity to possibly use log data to solve their issues, unless you allow said random user to actually read logs in their entirety. Talking a bit about possible disadvantages related to Journal D, Journal D does not include a well-defined remote logging implementation, and Therefore, it is not the best option to consider when you need to build a central logging server. Whereas syslog allows that to happen very well, since there is even a same name protocol which is used to send messages to a main log server running a syslog instance. Plus, Journal D considers only information of Linux systems, while syslog encompasses more, such as logs generated by firewall devices and routers. This means that correlation between the logs of the different devices in your infrastructure might be made more efficient when you indeed have a centralized syslog server to gather all of that information, especially considering that it is possible to send journal D data to an already existing syslog implementation, 
as Journal D retains full syslog compatibility. One of the issues we find with this, though, is that most advantages that come with Journal D are lost when such messages are sent to the centralized syslog server, as this server, as the name implies, will include a syslog implementation instead of a Journal D one. This syslog implementation recovering, storing, and processing messages as a regular syslog instance would. So, no indexing and no optimized data reading and filtering. The other possible issue is that Journal D needs to send its data to a local syslog server, and this server will then send that data to the remote one. Having two tools doing the same logging work might not be the most ideal thing for you or for your infrastructure. So do take that into account when setting up your logs and your whole logging system. For this reason and the other reasons mentioned, we have that Journal D ends up being more host-based than syslog. Therefore, I once again ask the question, which one is better to use? Maybe it's Journal D in case you have one host only. Maybe it's syslog if you have an entire infrastructure and a centralized log server with third-party software that processes all information it gets. Or maybe it's even both, since, as we already discussed in previous episodes, an extra layer of protection is what will help you build up your cybersecurity walls of defense more efficiently, especially when you consider that you already have Journal D installed by default in your system. Going on to point number four, when installing tools such as Rootkit Hunter, be aware of possible false positives. It is always useful to have tools that scan your system for you and point you towards the direction issues might be. However, it is interesting to confirm that the issue database used by such programs is updated and well matched to your system in order for results to be actually useful. So keep two things in mind that tools such as Rootkit Hunter exist and can be very helpful, and that even though they can be helpful, they can also not be, if they are out of date and just end up flooding you with false positives that will then lead you on a wild goose chase that generates nothing of value to you or to your system. Also, do be careful about installing programs such as vulnerability scanners that can later on be used by attackers themselves to find flaws in your system. If you've used it and no longer need it installed, maybe remove it until it's once again necessary. After all, even security tools increase the attack surface of your system, and they themselves might have vulnerabilities related to them that could be exploited by someone with enough knowledge of it. Finally, and me saying this might sound unnecessary because it should be obvious, but I do say it because there is always that someone out there, right? Don't think that a scan performed by one single scanning tool is enough to guarantee security of a device, especially when we consider tools that do need to rely on previously known hashes or rules or sets of steps in order to identify a possibly malicious entity in a system. That is because attackers are always trying to circumvent these tools by using digital fake mustaches. And sometimes these disguises are enough, as is a certain superhero's glasses. I mean, how can people not know they are the same person? Unfortunately, 
this major oversight might happen sometimes with your security tools as well. So knowing this is key in order to actually building a truly secure system. By knowing, you also know that said tools should only be part of a bigger layered strategy you use to harden your system. Agreed? Time to dive into point number five. I was asked a question. Is ping still set UID root? And the answer is actually no. Oh well. Remember when we were talking about the dangers of the set UID binaries and I used ping as an example to show the issues that might arrive when you set that sneaky permission bit to one? Well, it turns out that my example was a little bit outdated since set UID ping was already put in the wanted list for causing too much security issues and was therefore demoted to non-set UID status. So if you are using Ubuntu 20.04 LTS, for example, you can run an ls-la user bin ping and you will see permission set to 755 instead of 4755. How is the privileged socket access performed in this case? Uh, well, that might be a discussion for a future podcast episode especially since a little bird told me that the solution for that might have caused an even bigger issue than the set UID bit when changes to remove it were initially being made. For now, I'll just leave you to wonder a little bit more about this and reinforce that even if ping is no longer set UID, the example stands to show the dangers of having this bit set, be it ping, be it any other executable in your system that might allow for malicious tampering. Consider the ping example a template of what could happen should you decide to maybe set its set UID bit. Don't actually do that though, please. Point number six is as simple as Netstat has been replaced with SS. I mentioned using Netstat to check open ports in your system because that is what I have been using since forever. Old habits die hard, I guess, and that, my friends, is definitely something I shouldn't be saying here, because old habits will also compromise you, since it is always important to keep up to date with recent software if you plan on being secure. So yes, forgive me, for I have been a hypocrite. Information on Netstat being deprecated is even in the man page for Netstat. Oof, hurts to see my own mistakes. Read your manuals, people. Their existence is not trivial. But you know what? You live and you learn. I know better now and you do too. So let's be better together, friends, and use SS instead of the obsolete netstat to find open ports in our system that are open for absolutely no reason. The good thing to come out of this mistake is that we get to once again remember the importance of updating and maintaining systems in order to actually keep them secure. And this also includes the system that is our own minds. Okay, now that we have tackled the <clears throat> minor errors I made in the last few episodes and honorably mentioned applications I forgot about, Let's bring up a few other hardening suggestions made by the Ubuntu security team so that you can harden your system even more. Let's start with the Mozilla TLS configuration generator. 
this tool, which can be accessed through the ssl-config.mozilla.org URL, can be used to generate configuration files for various server programs, Apache and Nginx included, and it considers three different security levels. Pretty nifty and gives you the opportunity to maybe learn more about application settings you might not have known all that much about in the first place and how they can help you when you wish to do hardening for applications you use. Let's Encrypt is in this list as suggestion number two, and it is a tool that allows you to get certificates and renew them often enough that you can't have expired certificates ruin your day. Let's Encrypt is a CA, or expanding on the acronym, a certificate authority, which is an entity you will need if you plan on using TLS to encrypt your web server's communications, for example. You can use Let's Encrypt to create your certificates and then configure the tool to automatically update these certificates whenever they are close to expiring. Phew! No need to worry about unintentionally sending unencrypted data over the wire because of a missed expired certificate. Give those attackers no windows of opportunity. AppArmor is installed in Ubuntu by default, and we already talked about it in the last episode, but I am here to ensure that you remember that it does exist, and even better, you don't even have to install it in your Ubuntu system to start using it. Take advantage of its existence and don't forget to profile applications running in your system. Profile till you can't know more and get that metaphorical armor polished and ready to take on everything and everyone, just because you can. And last but not least, I can't not reinforce this as I am in the security team and this is what we do for you. Always install your updates. Always. It might seem annoying, it might take some of your time, it might even be a little bit angering. But isn't making changes for the better what life is all about? Update and live to see your server survive another day. Update and sleep peacefully, knowing that you are doing the best you can for that server you care about. Update and be ready. Some updates will require the restarting of services so that those actually start using patched versions of recently changed libraries. And when we are talking about the kernel, reboots might be necessary. So include restarting and rebooting in your update plans as well, or else the patching done by the security team won't be effective in your system. If you're having trouble with this shameless plug, consider using Ubuntu Live Patch in order to get those kernel security critical updates installed into your system without having to reboot the machine. It's free for personal use on up to three computers and it's easy to set up through your Ubuntu system with your Ubuntu One account. And that is it, an extra episode to patch my previous mistakes and to deliver to you updates on some previously incomplete information. An episode that mirrors the work done by the Ubuntu team on its packages and that hopefully brings you as much benefits as those patches do. Keep your patches up to date, keep your hardening up to date, keep your knowledge up to date, and I am sure you will be ready to face a lot more than you expect. Thank you all for listening to this extra episode of the Ubuntu Hardening series on the Ubuntu Security Podcast. Feel free to share your thoughts on this subject and on this series in any of our social media channels. 
I hope to talk to you all once again in the future, but for now, I bid you farewell and until next time. Bye. And thanks again, Camilla. All right, so the other thing that I wanted to mention briefly in this week's episode is that uh, the Ubuntu 22.04 beta was released this week. Uh, I've got a link in the show notes to that release announcement, plus some links to uh, the guide for doing upgrades. So if you have got a 20.04 long-term support uh, install and you want to test upgrading that to what will uh, eventually be 22.04 long-term support release within, I guess, the next four weeks, uh, you can check that out as well. I've got a link to uh, the draft uh, release notes as well. So yeah, if you have got some time to test that out, would be great. Uh, any feedback you can give would be awesome. Okay, so that takes us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks for uh, sitting through my croaky voice. Uh, but as usual, if you want to get in contact with the team, you can reach us at securityubuntu.com. We also hang out in the Ubuntu security channel on the libero.chat IRC network. And we are on Twitter too, at Ubuntu underscore sec. So thanks, everyone. I'll be back again with you all next week to do it all again. But until then, remember, keep calm because we've got your back and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.